Welcome to the WBGO Journal. I'm Doug Doyle. Today we'll hear why Newark is a hotbed for filmmaking. I looked to my left and there was a film crew doing a TV show. I looked to my right, there was another film crew doing a feature on the same street. And I'm saying Newark has definitely arrived. The National Black Theater in Harlem is breaking ground on a new building. I'll chat with the CEO, Sade Lithcott, and Artistic Director, Jonathan McCrory. We are about to break ground on our brand new facility in our old space. So uh, we are reimagining the corner of 125th and 5th Avenue. WBGO's Kenneth Burns reports on how Black-owned businesses have fared during the COVID-19 pandemic. And the stars of Two River Theater's bold new translation of Chekhov's classic play, Three Sisters, joins us. I've really come to re-understand the character and the whole play as um, being focused on family. All this coming up today on the WBGO Journal. The city of Newark has had a major uptick in television and movie production in recent years, and officials expect that number to increase, sparking investment and job opportunities with the recent announcement of a Lionsgate studio coming to Newark's South Ward. Stephen Gorlick is the executive director of the New Jersey Motion Picture and Television Commission. Gorlick joined Newark Today host Michael Hill this week. The secret to creating a, an industry that has longevity in this state is uh, having infrastructure. I keep using that word infrastructure. We all do. Because, you know, filmmaking, motion picture and television production can be very transient. They can be here one year and gone the next, you know, depending on the whims of politics and such. What you need is the building blocks uh, uh, of a, a permanent industry. And that's, that is infrastructure. That is studios, equipment houses, uh, post-production facilities and the like. Once you have that, uh, you, you have a, a strong industry that, that I think is too big to fail. And, and that's, that's what will take us into the future. It can't just be motion picture and television activity. It's a very, very exciting time for Newark, for New Jersey. I mean, for Newark, you know, Newark is almost the epicenter of this. The amount of production that's gone, gone on here. I, I, you know, I, I did a uh, um, check just before the show, 203 projects have been shot in Newark since the tax credit has been instituted uh, in 2018. Now, some of them are just commercials, but some are we're talking a lot of TV shows and motion pictures and such. I mean, that, that, is, just, that is just Newark alone. And Newark certainly is one of the uh, uh, centers of production activity in the state. So uh, you, you mentioned, Stephen, that not just the industry knocking on the door in Newark and in New Jersey, but banging on the door exploding into the state is what I would call it. I was, I was, uh, this is about two weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago. I was going out of the parking deck on uh, Washington's, on, uh, excuse me, University Avenue, our parking deck. I'm not joking when I say this. I looked to my left and there was a film crew doing a TV show. I looked to my right, there was another film crew doing a feature on the same street. And I'm saying Newark has definitely arrived. <laughs> What is it about Newark that has people wanting to film in Newark? Well, a lot of a lot of projects obviously are sitting set in big cities, and Newark sometimes stands in for Newark, as it did in uh, the Many Saints of Newark. Yes. Uh, or uh, um, well, other you know many other projects, but uh, oftentimes it's standing in for other cities like uh, uh, New York, of course, frequently. Uh, Chicago, Los Angeles, you you name it, uh, and you know New Jersey. Let's let's be honest. Only has several cities that you would call large cities: Newark and Jersey City, primarily, and Patterson, of course, 
uh, are the are the the biggest of them. You know, there's not a lot of big cities here, so a lot of projects, as I say, are set in uh, um, uh, large city environments. And and Newark, uh, in particular, has an incredible variety of architecture, historic sites. The New Jersey Performing Arts Center in Newark alone has been host for several TV shows recently. Fellow guest NJPAC CEO and President John Schreiber says it's about a third cheaper to film in Newark than in New York City. You can see the entire Newark Today program on the WBGO Facebook page. Joining me on the WBGO Journal are two extremely talented people, very much involved in the arts, and they just happen to be representing the same organization, the National Black Theater. It's wonderful to have Sade Lithcott and Jonathan McCrory joining us here on the WBGO Journal. Hey, this is exciting times for NBT. Sade, we'll get into your background in just a moment, but construction underway on a whole new atmosphere for NBT. You want to tell us about it? Yeah, so we are about to break ground on our brand new facility in our old space. So uh, we are reimagining the corner of 125th and 5th Avenue with a brand new state-of-the-art two performance spaces um, in the midst of a a mixed-use building that is going to bring uh, cultural vibrancy to the corridor of 125th Street in Harlem. We'll have a 99 seat studio theater, an immersive technology uh, temple of liberation, which will be a gathering space. We'll have support spaces with rehearsal studios, a recording booth. We'll have a set shop. Um, we really are thinking about the theater of the future and what Harlem deserves and what Black artists deserves as their home away from home. So we're incredibly excited to be in this ambitious capital project that will bring um, soul alive in a new contemporary way uh, to Harlem uh, in the vision of our founder, Dr. Barbara Ann Tier. And Dr. Barbara Antier passed away in 2008, your mom, and you have done an amazing job keeping her legacy alive. I can only imagine how proud she is of Sade, especially as this new construction is going to be nearing completion. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things I can feel her all the way through. And in some ways, she and her vision and her blueprint is our North star. Um, This feels like the completion of what her vision is, but it also feels like this epic project that is the completion of many of our ancestors in their imagining of what this radically free, loving, liberated Afro future could be for Harlem and artists. And so 
we're 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 honoring seven generations back with this construction and i think we're also serving seven generations forward with the way we're thinking about built space um in service of black liberation and human transformation so yeah thank you for saying it douglas like I feel her pride and I feel our ancestors' pride as Jonathan and I get to dream into designing this theater of the future. It's too bad you're not passionate about uh, <laughs> National Black Theater. Sade Lithcott is the chief executive officer of the historic NBT and the Obie Award-winning and Adelco-nominated Harlem-based artist who happens to be the artistic director is Jonathan McCrory. And Jonathan... I can see just in your face as Sade was talking, the pride that builds up inside. You two have been a great partnership throughout <laughs> all this. You've been a part of this since 2012, right? Yeah, this is my 10th year. We have uh, sometimes a symbiotic nature of wearing the same colorways. As you can see, pink is the color for the day. And you both look fabulous. And uh, for those who are watching us on this uh, Zoom session, you can see the wonderful backdrops for both of them. I uh, love the James Baldwin poster behind you. And for Sade, she has this wonderful collection of African art. And uh, so beautiful, much better than my backdrop. So thanks for showing me up here today. Jonathan, when it comes to a lot of, not only the, the constructions, the excitement, but there's a lot of projects that are you know underway and involved. And I want to talk first about, about the Juneteenth event that's coming up. Fill our audience in about that. Oh, so on Juneteenth, um, so on Juneteenth, there a film that uh, will be re-released um, uh, called "The Roll Call: The Roots to Strange Fruit," um, and on and on Juneteenth, we're going to re-release it on PBS and All Arts. There will also be a conversation on that was that was done, giving a little more insight to it. Um, and I think in addition to that, uh, before we even get to Juneteenth, um, we get to celebrate Dr. Barbara Antier. Um, Dr. Barbara Antier's uh, birthday, our Founders Day, is actually June 18th. So Juneteenth um, and uh, is, is like the precursor where we start celebrating at National Black Theater is on June 18th. Um, where we get to really center and uplift the legacy and, and, and the fortitude and the vision that Dr. Barbara Antier laid um, in the foundation of creating this cultural institution. And how we are celebrating this year is that we, um, we have an amazing show called Fat Ham that's happening at, there's a co-production um, happening at the Public Theater. Uh, it is a Pulitzer winning play. Um, it has been extended three times. Um, and it's just a wonderful opportunity for us to engage um, with our legacy and her trajectory as Dr. Dr. Barbara Antier and Joe Papp, um, Joe Papp being the founder of The Public, were close friends and actually Joe Papp helped to uh, give some, some, real, some real fundamental energy and platform for Dr. Tier to build what we now all get to swim in and, and, and Shade and I in particular with the rest of our staff get to steward. So there will be a special talk back afterwards on June 18th after Fat Ham. Um, and then on Juneteenth, we'll be re-releasing um, the role called The Roots of Strange Fruit with an interview um, that will follow. Um, so those are two ways in which we are definitely celebrating Black liberation um, and uh, Black innovation and, and Black joy. You mentioned the word foundation, and that certainly is the case for MBT when it comes to Dr. Barbara Ann Tier. Your mom, Sade, what don't we know about her? What is something oh. that you can tell us about 
that we we don't know. Give us, and I'm not talking dirt. I'm talking, I'm talking good <laughs> I stuff. I wouldn't give it to you. <laughs> no, I'm talking good stuff. I mean, take us into um, a conversation maybe you two had at some point, maybe about art, maybe about theater, maybe about just Harlem. Yeah, so I think a little known fact is that my mother um, graduated high school when she was 15. And so she went to college at 15, a very young age, and she knew she wanted to study biology. And so she approached school and higher learning from a place of science and experimentation. And it wasn't until she really got a taste of the arts, specifically dance, that it changed the trajectory of her life. I raise that as a fun fact because I think that her approach to theater making was that of a mad scientist, right? Like MBT has the great privilege to be a home away from home for black performing artists and multidisciplinary artists. But what we're welcoming you into is this incredible experiment. And and we boil our experiment down to this theory of change, which is black liberation plus art plus placemaking equals human transformation. And that was really what Dr. Tier was fixated on. She didn't care that it was the most commercially viable piece of art. She cared that, that the stories that we tell on our stages are in service to building um, and activating community in in specifically in the direction of reconstructing and recalibrating the black identity here in America. And so I think that that's the thing that's the most exciting and less, least known fact about Dr. Tear is that she was a mad scientist in her approach to the way um, she created this cultural institution and the way that we produce even to this day. Mad scientist. Wow. That's, that's pretty interesting and a beautiful relationship. You know, sometimes when we hear that people are expected to fill their, their parents' role in a, in a position, whatnot, um, sometimes it just doesn't add up. It's just not that what that person is about. But for you, it's been such a wonderful transition. Jonathan, if, Dr. Barbara Antier was joining us on this Zoom session, and you had a chance to tell her about how much you love MBT. What would you want to say to her? Uh, I mean, that's really, it's an interesting question because I feel like um, the way in which I wake up and, and actually address the call of National Black Theater is always telling her that I love her. Um, I think the, my commitment and ability to stretch into the space of becoming the best human that I possibly can is a way of saying that I love her. Um, I think that, and the way that I love National Black Theater, um, I think that my act of living <laughs> for the past 10 years is a direct correlation to that love note. Um, I think that I have done, I hope that I have I have done works and actions and um, my own personal development um, that would seemingly, if she was able to witness it from a physical space here on this planet, would make her proud and happy to be a participant, a co-curator and witnessing it. But from a spiritual space, I hope that she's elated and that, that and I feel that the affirmation of that is that we keep on shining um, even through our, even through everything that we've gone through to get to this point. Um, it's been through magic. 
Um, there's a lot of fortitude. There's a lot of, there's a lot of ingenuity. There's a lot of wisdom and there's a lot of grace. But there's also a lot of spiritual magic. For more information about NBT, you can go to nationalblacktheater.org. In the early days of the pandemic, black-owned businesses closed at twice the rate of others. Then they rebounded last year to a higher level than before the COVID-19 pandemic. WBGO's Kenneth Burns looks at whether that boom in black-owned businesses has come to the Garden State. The Heart of Hustle gift shop at the Cumberland Mall in Vineland has all sorts of fun items for all ages, but primarily caters to young people. A Disney movie plays in the background, the original Jungle Book for the record, as shop owner Chris Newsom describes some of the items in stock. Um, over here is the famous Squishmallows. Um, Squishmallows is one of the hottest trending kids plush toy uh, out right now. It's a very uh, hot collectible. Newsom began his business selling novelty socks in a mall kiosk in 2018. He would move into his current space located next to the GameStop in 2019 several months before the COVID pandemic prompted shutdowns. The business survived with help it received from the Greater Vineland Chamber of Commerce in securing funding. Newsom says the community, where his business plays an active role, also helped them get through. We helped the community, helped us by still shopping with it, still coming out and supporting the small business. Business is going fairly well now. Newsom says he recently opened a second location in Deptford. He adds that other Black-owned businesses he networks with are experiencing growth as well. We're definitely bouncing back now that the restrictions is off, and now we actually can reach out to the community, and the community can come back to reach out to us. A Washington Post analysis of data from the Bureau of Labor of Statistics suggests that Black business ownership rebounded to a level higher than before the pandemic. The paper says Black-owned businesses were created at the fastest clip in at least two and a half decades. John Harmon, founder, president, and CEO of the African-American Chamber of Commerce of New Jersey, confirms that the Garden State is seeing a boom in Black-owned businesses as well. But there's a caveat. While the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis awakened interest in Black-owned companies, he says the resources to support those entities have not followed in a significant way. We've made it clear that Black businesses deserve an opportunity to enjoy the prosperity that this country has. And the numbers indicate that that has not happened in, in an appreciable way. They've been reaching out to senior leaders in the government and corporate sectors to drive those resources to entities. Harmon says with so much capital available from banks, the challenge for black businesses is to seize the available opportunity. I still think there's some ambivalence in the marketplace from our side. Some folks are still not sure this is real or that they too could be a part of what's occurring. And, and I'm just sharing with folks, you got to step out there. Among those stepping out is Corey Cunningham, who recently held the grand opening for Chakra Soups in Willingboro with his wife. It's an eatery that offers soups, salads, and wraps, mostly vegan and vegetarian, but with flexitarian options as well. Prior to starting a business, Cottingham has been promoting Black-owned businesses as a co-founder of the Melanin Market. When we put our first one on, it was just an amazing event. We had about 70 Black businesses, and it just grew after that. Cottingham describes the Melanin Market as an experience with entertainment, talks about business, and more. Their last event in Pensacola back in May attracted more than 150 businesses. 
Their next event, the weekend of June 24th at the Morristown Mall, will be smaller. Cottingham says the more than 30 businesses that have signed up for the event will be exposed to consumers of all backgrounds. So it's going to be a great opportunity for Black-owned businesses not just to put their brand out in their community, but out into the county, as well as Morristown Mall, which is a place that suffered during the COVID pandemic. The Melanin Market is planning to expand as well. Cottingham and his partners are looking to bring their expo to other cities across the country in the next year. He adds that people should not just support black businesses, but patronize them as well. For the WBGO Journal, I'm Kenneth Burns. Two River Theater playwright in residence, Madeline George, collaborates with director Sarah Holden to create a bold new translation of Chekhov's classic play, Three Sisters, and it runs through June 26th at Two River Theater in Red Bank. And joining us are the three sisters in the play. We are thrilled to have Anna Ishida, who plays Olga, Annalise Lawson, who plays Masha, and Namuna Sise, who plays Irina. Ladies, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us. We have three very talented performers here with us today, and uh, they're taking three sisters to a whole new type of atmosphere. Now, this play is about big souls being trapped in tiny boxes, stuck in the Russian countryside at the turn of the 20th century. Sisters Olga, Masha, and Irina dream of futures in the wake of their father's death and a changing Russia. Now we see three people who never grew up in Russia performing this play. Uh, we have California flavor, certainly, when it comes to, to this cast. But let's start off with you, Anna. Why is it important, and why are there so many adaptations of Chekhov plays? I mean, obviously, there's a... Uh, <laughs> a feeling of connection still and relevance with Chekhov plays? Uh, I think the more things change, the more things stay the same. Um, and I think uh, Chekhov, and this is, by the way, my first experience working on Chekhov. Um, and I was intimidated and an actor said, but an actor sent me off saying, Shakespeare is to language as Chekhov is to human behavior. And that was a huge way in for me. And just last night, um, you know, people like having connections and then saying goodbye, maybe, maybe 10, 15 years down the line, you know, we'll give each other a handshake is basically, I heard that as, yeah, like we're friends, follow you on Instagram. You know, the more things change, the more things stay the same, the more, you know, human behavior just kind of doesn't really change. I think throughout the millennia, maybe we have a lot more neuroses these, these days. Um, but the actual crux of, I think, this particular work is human interaction, which is painful, uh, awkward, beautiful, life-saving, life-changing. Those things still happen, and they also happen to everyday people, which is who these characters are, just these you know, cathartic moments that happen in everyday life that, you know, can, I mean, it still resonates. Absolutely. Anna, can you tell us a little bit about your character, Olga? Um, Olga, and I came later to the production. Um, it's an interesting role for me personally, because it's not a role that I'm usually cast in. 
But once I read it and met my um, compatriots and started to live the play, I thought, oh, this is uh, absolutely what I, me right now. Um, Our wonderful understudy, Amaya, um, gave us all affirmation cards resonant with our characters and mine says, do less, like don't do, take a break. So Olga is the eldest sister and it seems and takes it upon herself due to circumstance and personality, you know, interchangeably to make sure that everyone is okay. Everyone has their tea. Everyone's behaving. Uh, everyone, you know, the linchpin of the family to her own potential detriment, um, trying to make that lemonade out of lemons. Her future got taken away from her due to circumstance of her parental deaths, but she had a very clear purpose um, as a result, taking care of her remaining family and also externally, societally, um, being hired as a headmistress, being placed as the headmistress of a school to maintain the running of that particular institution as well, which is contributing to, you know, teaching people how to act. <laughs> Namuna Sise, you play Arena. And so give us some insight on what you've taken from Marina. Who is she? Yeah, um, I have come to love Irina a lot. Um, when I first started this production, I wasn't sure. Like, I, I, at me as an actor was like, I mean, she's fun. She's cute. She, like, has a good time. But, like, I didn't quite understand um, her plight. I think it's easy to look at her, uh, on the page as like, just like a naive, young, like innocent, uh, maybe, um, I don't know. I don't want to use the word dumb, but that's the word that's coming to my mind. Well, <laughs> I said she's an, I, I mean, I called her an ingenue, so you say, I mean, you're, you're like, really? Yeah. yeah. And but. so I was, I, again, like, like Anna was saying, I didn't, um, this isn't a character that I usually get cast in. And I was a little bit like, how am I going to come to this character and like bring her life and make her likable? Um, And through uh, bringing her to life, I have really fallen in love with her. And uh, I have, I feel so connected to her. She's a dreamer. Um, She, from like the first words in the play, she's like, I'm, I'm just so happy. I have so many dreams. Everything is so beautiful. Um, And she really tries to hold on to that through the play, even as life is sort of choking her to use her own words. Um, She's also the thing that's been surprising to me about her, because you kind of see that she's a dreamer on the page. But the thing that I love about her the most is that she has this very intense, strong intuition and like throughout the whole play, I've, I've just been like, wow, this is amazing. Like she, she is the youngest sister. She is kind of moved around by like as a pawn in this play by men, by everybody. Um, but she, she feels so deeply um, and she knows when something is off. And, um, and it affects her very, very deeply. She's very em- empathic, I think. Um, so yeah, it's been, it's been like the, the role of a lifetime so far for me and playing with Anna and Annalise as my sisters and everybody else in this incredibly talented, generous cast, like the most generous, talented cast I've ever worked with has been spectacular every single time. It's interesting that both Luna and Anna have mentioned that 
not typical roles. I was doing the background on all three of you, and I'm going, why are they in this this play, right? So when Annalise Lawson, you play the middle sister, Masha, so obviously uh, you have to play both sides of a relationship when you're in the middle, right? So tell us a little bit about Masha. Well, um, yes and no. <laughs> As a middle child in my own life, I can definitely say, yes, that experience of playing both sides uh, from the middle is, is accurate. Masha um, is a bit less so. She, she's having a hard time. The play starts with her. I mean, the play opens uh, a year after the death of their father to the day. Um, and Masha is the only sibling still in mourning. Um, so I, I think uh, the thing that I love about Masha and, um, was sort of intimidating about the role when I first approached it is she lets her feelings be known. She has big feelings and on the page, very little filter for them. Like when she's mad, she's mad. When she's happy, she's happy. When she's raucous, she's raucous. Um, and working in, uh, as Namuna was saying, this ensemble, uh, it's been lovely because um, Masha, as a character, got herself, she married perhaps unwisely when she was 18. We all make bad decisions sometimes when we're teenagers. Um, and is sort of finding herself stuck in this marriage that while there might be love there, it is not the big, passionate, deep love you want. And unfortunately in the play, uh, falls in love for the first time in her life. Um, and I, I think from at the outset, it was, it's very easy to sort of look at the headline of like, oh, this passionate love affair is like the main thing about this character and their main struggle. Um, but as we've been working on it together, I've really come to re-understand the character and the whole play as um, being focused on family and how, how, if at all, can, can you keep your family together? Three Sisters runs through June 26th at Two River Theater in Red Bank. You can see my entire interview with the stars of the show on the WBGO Facebook page. Thanks for listening to the WBGO Journal. I'm Doug Doyle. Join us next Saturday morning at 5.30 for another edition of the award-winning WBGO Journal. In the meantime, stay tuned to the world's greatest jazz station, WBGO and WBGO.org.